think the last five years have been when a new uh, structure of affect, a new feeling around culture has really become dominant and has gone from being something that was emergent on, on its way to something that is all around us really def is the, the texture around us. And, and it is clear to me that we are in a new time of transition, partly because um, a certain sense of crisis has worked its way into culture in good and bad ways, that there is definitely a reaction group. Feels like we're in a, 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 you know, there is a vibe shift, if you will. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Uh Welcome, everybody. I'm Ben Davis. And this, in case you don't know, you, you are in the online launch for my new book, Art in the Afterculture. We're here, and I deeply appreciate your, your, your time. These are, these are um, alienating times, and um, I appreciate you being here with us in the project of trying to figure out what it all means. So before I say anything about myself or about this book, I want to introduce um, Naim and Julieta just so that folks know a little bit what they're in for um, and what we're going to be talking about. So Naim Mohaiman is an artist based in New York, uh, who I've known for a really long time now, um, since I moved to New York almost, and since some of the first things I wrote about art in, in 2005. Um, and he specializes in making work that touches on a lot of the themes that are important to this book, about the history of the revolutionary left, about the role of misrecognition within global solidarity movements. He's been shown in the last Documenta in Castle. He's been nominated for the Turner Prize in, in 2018. And he's in the upcoming Front Triennial in, in Cleveland, which is about to open. And he also teaches at Columbia University in visual arts and photography, so he can tell us about what a um, how 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 new artists are processing some of the themes that I touch on in this book. Julieta Aranda is an artist in Berlin, from where she's uh, joining us right now, and I thank her very much for um, staying up late uh, um, to 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 be present. She um, also works with a lot of themes that are relevant to this book, uh, which is why she's here. She works with themes of science fiction, alternative economies, and the poetics of circulation. Her art's been seen at the Guggenheim, at the Venice Biennale, the Berlin Biennial, and in many other places. She's also the editor of, of EFLEX Journal, one of the most interesting um, uh, art media projects, experimental art media projects out there, and co-director of the EFLEX online platform since 2003. So 
I'm going to tell you how the, this event is going to go. Uh, my book, the book that we're here to talk about, Art in the Afterculture, is a collection of essays. It's a collection of eight essays and change. Eight essays and two uh, short stories, essentially. Uh, they are elaborations, distillations of things that I've written about in the last five or so years. Um, and because it's a collection of essay, it contains a lot. And so it's difficult to talk about. We could go in a lot of directions. There are essays about the history of taste, about politics in the museum, about artificial intelligence and in art, about online organizing, about cultural appropriation, about the role of conspiracy theories in culture now. So we could have a very disorienting conversation. We probably will have a, a disorienting conversation. Um, but to give it some kind of focus, what I thought I would do is I would speak at the beginning just to try and give a sense of the general theme, try and make my pitch to you, the audience, about why you might be interested um, in picking up this book. And then Naeem and, and Julieta are going to each respond to one chapter of the book. Uh, uh, Naeem to uh, the chapter that's on digital culture and how it's affected the, the art experience, art making, the museum, and Julieta on the chapter on eco-art, environmentalism, the environmental crisis and how what that means for culture. So we're going to go to from uh, Instagram traps to the end of the world. It's a lot to cover, but I think it should be an interesting discussion. Um, and then uh, they'll each speak about uh, whatever theme stood out for them. Then we will uh, have a conversation where we try and tie together some of those some of those themes, and then there will be a chance for a Q and A. So, if there are questions building up out there, there are people monitoring the chat in in YouTube. Um, I'll just say it's opening up, but feel free to put in questions whenever you you have them. Um, if there are um, pressing questions that need to be answered right now, put them in, and and Jim, who's watching, will relay them to me. So to introduce the book generally, um, I have to say it's, it's difficult for me to talk. And the reason is talk about it because I have two audiences in my mind. Like I'm not exactly sure um, which to talk to. There are people who know me from my art life and from art. And to them, I feel like I, I, I want to make this relevant to them. And so I have to, to, to convince them there's a conversation that's going to be sensitive to art and not be some kind of just veiled pitch for my own quirky brand of Marxism. Um, and then there are people who know me from an activist context or from my socialist life. And to them, I have to convince them that any of this matters at all. That it's not just frivolous, um, 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 silly stuff. So what I guess what I would say is this. The last few years have been a time of tremendous change for art and also for culture, for media, for politics, for activism, and for how these, all these things interconnect. And I guess maybe to say that is, sounds extremely obvious um, as an overall theme, but in some ways I think it's not because although there are like these big crises that bloom all around us all the time uh, and to capture the mind from minute to minute, 
it's 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 we're so pinned to those immediate things and 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 that it's some in some ways i think more difficult to think about the deeper structural shifts beneath them you know what's causing these things what tie, what themes tie them all together and that's kind of the project of the book to look at the, the bigger themes underneath kind of local things sometimes i think about it as like you're in a building or a museum and, and paintings keep falling off the walls and you're constantly um um, um, completely, you're, you're, you're completely distressed because another masterpiece has been destroyed. And this keeps happening, um, crisis after crisis and trying to do cleanup. But obviously there's under, there are deeper structural problems here. There are things changing the foundations, things changing in the environment around, around, um, around the structure to, to talk about. So my last book, 9.5 Theses in Art and Class came out, uh, in 2013 or 2014, and it was shortly after that um, came out that I think I first had the thought or became aware that culture was starting to feel different. Like I could, you could really feel um, for a variety of reasons that there was a new texture arising. For, and, and, and I don't think it was one thing. It was a, something I say in the introduction of this book. I think it's important to say it's, it's not a single shift. It's, an, it's how a number of different things interact with each other. It was the, the change in how media worked because of, of digital culture and social media. It was the rise of new kinds of, of social movements. It was the general breakdown of institutions uh, of art and the institutions around art. And these interacted to form a very different kind of sense of, of culture. It felt like, it felt like the, the kinds of theories that I had been taught in, in college, even to a certain extent, the kinds of theories that I had um, laid out in my first book. Although I think there are Parts of my first book that um, read like they really predicted the next seven years. I think I think there were definitely things to be rethought, and that is thinking about some of those things is the project of this book. Now, what I think is interesting is that I think the last five years have been when uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a what I a new. Uh, structure of affect, a new feeling around culture has really become dominant um, and has gone from being something that was emerging on, on its way to something that is all around us really def is the, the texture around us. And, and it is clear to me that we are in a new time of transition. There is a new, there, partly because um, a certain sense of crisis has worked its way into culture um, in good and bad ways, that there is definitely a reaction brew feels like we're in a, 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 you know, there is a vibe shift, if you will, and there is a wrestling match over what will define, it, what kind of, what will be cool to a rising generation of artists, what will define the, the near future. And I think for me, part of looking at the recent past, trying to give some art historical context to it, some political context to it, think about, think about some of these questions strategically, is not just a historical project or a theoretical project, but it's, it's really a project about about surfing that, that change, like trying to figure out what is what kinds of energies are going to are going to be um, what we to ask the question of what we want a, a, a culture to be like now, how it reacts to and corrects for the recent past, what it, what what should be saved from the recent past, because it's clear to me that there is a, a backlash or we're in a backlash or a transition. So um, with that. I am going to, I think that's as far as I can go speaking very generally, generally. and um, I'd like now to, 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 to 
to have Naeem and Julia to help me think about some of these things in a more concrete way. They, they both um, have taken a look at the book and, and have thoughts about, about how pieces of it are relevant to what they've been thinking about um, and are here to discuss and debate with me. So Naeem, I'm going to throw it to you. The third chapter in the book is called The Art World and the Culture Network, which is about social media, uh, immersive experiences, and tries to put them in the context of, of uh, uh, not just as sort of trivial things, but as things that, that pick up on bigger uh, narratives in our history and therefore that we should take a little bit more seriously as, as challenges um, for the contemporary museum, the contemporary experience. experience. And I even pick it away. Thank you, Ben, and thank you for the invitation. And really nice to be also with uh, Julieta in this way. Um, you know, Julieta used to be in New York full time once upon a time, and I have very good memories of the works and communities that we had in those times. Uh, so it's nice to be back together here. You mentioned people being zoomed out, uh, and what's interesting to note is this quite unfamiliar interface that I'm looking at is Skype, and. Uh, at the very beginning of this process, uh, I think John or somebody else from Haymarket Books wrote something like, if like me, you haven't logged into Skype since the beginning of the pandemic. And I remember thinking that's true. I used to log into Skype all the time and then suddenly Zoom took over. So the unfamiliarity of this interface over two years is also sort of how I'm uh, taking in this experience. And it's worth pausing to think about that because also the audience is possibly viewing this on YouTube as well. So we've already got right here mediations on top of mediations, and at least Julieta and I are presumably also in a virtual background. Um, you know, I was uh, thinking of uh, 9.5 theses on art and class, and uh, just before the event was looking up the photograph of our launch event, which I participated in, and that launched, so the book came out late 2013, but I think the launch event might have been 2004 and eight, and it was at Housing Works. Um, which of course is still around uh, vibrant, but maybe has a different register now nine years later than even it did in 2013. And I remember William Pauhida was there who did the cover um, for 9.5 theses and a few other people. And William Pauhida's drawings, you know, most famously appeared on the cover of Brooklyn Rail, tracing out a network of uh, financial relationships behind a show at the new museum. Um, and just mentioning that because that kind of Mark Lombardi-like sketching out of um, financial networks in the art world, I think in some ways in 2013 when the book came out, it was a new thing that you were pulling back the curtain on. And in some ways, one of the changes that's happened is that in some ways, the curtain is open and people are very aware of those financial networks and just sort of accept it. Um, you know, including the visual arts as a repository of certain kind of, you know, financing that benefits forces that we might not want to benefit and disparities that get created within it. And yet we're all in that space because we're also trying to figure out a way to be in there to do our work, um, perhaps in spite of or whatever else. Um, so that was just like an initial thought. And of course, just worth mentioning, given the moment we are in right now with the ever expanding um, Russian uh, war on Ukraine, that one of the first events that happened when that war broke out is the visual arts, the art world suddenly waking up to how much money of a compromised type, compromised, it's almost like the old um, Soviet concept of compromat, uh, compromised because of adjacency to whoever they're adjacent to, and then the levels of action that were taken against funding within the museum world, you know, how fast you could cut it back or not. 
just worth pausing to think about that uh, for a second as well. Um, but I wanted to talk, um, you know, in this book, in Art in the After Culture, I was also just really trying to connect it with 9.5 theses on, on art and class. And I do think that in some ways, some of the things that, Ben, you were early in pointing out, um, you know, both the role of class within both the benefactors of the visual arts and the practitioners within it, um, and the larger class politics of contemporary visual arts now has become something that we just have understood so well because it's been um, so clearly delineated. And so the crisis is kind of perpetual and then we're all trying to figure out how we navigate within that. Um, so within this chapter, um, the one I looked at, which is chapter three, uh, the art world and the culture network, uh, you know, you talked about, you know, in the introduction, you said uh, maybe... I might talk about the ways that newer technologies are changing the kinds of works uh, we're making, et cetera. And I thought it's interesting in this chapter of yours to just look at this one um, story that you told um, quite briefly over two pages, but sort of charting out a certain kind of move, which is um, the popularization of the Mona Lisa uh, and how that came to happen and the first action of layering on top of the Mona Lisa and then it's second round of popularity and then another person's desire to be layering or altering the way the Mona Lisa should work. So as your chapter points out, chapter three, the painting is first created in 1503, but doesn't actually become popular or known even until 1911 when it's stolen. And the manhunt for the thief includes these wanted posters with the images of the Mona Lisa uh, that converge with the rise of newsreels and the consolidation, as you put it, of tabloid newspapers. So that the newsreel and the tabloid newspaper together introduce this dramatic scandal to a larger public. And then as your chapter points out, people go to see the empty space where the Mona Lisa was supposed to be. So it's a very interesting moment where audiences feel that the blank space where the Mona Lisa was is worth viewing. And for many of those audience members, it's the first time that they're actually seeing it. Uh, eventually, the Mona Lisa is found. And eight years later, as you point out, Duchamp makes the kind of the first well-known riff on top of the Mona Lisa, right? A copy of the Mona Lisa with a mustache on top and a raunchy caption. Um, and then you move to 1963 uh, and the first U.S. tour of the Mona Lisa. And this sort of quite spectacular event organized between Kennedy and Andre Malraux, who's the culture minister at that time. Um, and around the same time, has written this text called Museum Without Walls. Um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's a shift. The Mona Lisa leaves France, arrives in the United States, arrives in the quote-unquote new world, uh, is located at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and is seen by one million people in that time. Uh, and then Andy Warhol at one point famously says, well, why don't they just put a copy? Nobody would be able to tell the difference. And so all of these things together, you know, brought to my mind, I, you know, the ways that the work of art is made and then seen almost through another medium. It's seen through a wanted poster. It's seen through newspaper reports. It's seen through breathless newsreel reports. Um, after which it rises in popularity, immediately leading Duchamp to do a riff on it. Um, and then the US tour through which people are finally seeing it, which leads Warhol to say that if there's this mass popularity, why even show the original? 
And it sort of got my head um, going about a few things that I've just been thinking about. And if it's okay, Ben, I'd just like to share a few images and a little clip just as a way to talk about um, the thoughts that were generated by this Mona Lisa story. Uh, so I'm going to ask John, um, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work on Skype because this is where the unfamiliarity part comes in. I'm going to ask John to play the video clip with the sound and then just go to the first image. Um, this is a clip from Alex Rivera's Sleep Dealer, which was released in 2008. Um, also, John, I don't know if it's just me, but I'm hearing a creaking horror film sound in the background. Not sure. Let's go. Yes, go for it. And then the, uh, when the clip ends, the, uh, the first slide, which is a um, still from Alex's Sleep Dealer. talk about it when the clip ends. A veces, durante los turnos largos, alucinábamos. O si pegaba un pico en el voltaje, te quedaba ciego. A las fábricas les decimos sleep dealers, porque si te sigues trabajando, te colapsas. Pero a veces se me olvidaba dónde estaba. Y todo volvía. Mi hogar, la casa donde crecí, en Santana del Río. Oaxaca, México. Me llamo Memo Cruz. Thank you, John. And if we can have the slide up uh, from Sleep Dealer, which is a uh, scene from it. So this is Alex Rivera, um, his first film, Sleep Dealer, uh, a dystopian science fiction that imagines that people living in Mexico uh, in a not so far away future can only work in the U.S. by going to these little pod-like offices where you plug into this device and the device sends your soul or your spirit or your something else uh, to the US where it occupies a machine that then does construction work. 
And at the end of the evening, you unplug and you're back in Mexico and you haven't crossed the border, but you've been the super fungible labor. Um, and then, of course, eventually there are these illegal networks that give you the fix of getting into these machines and going to the U.S. without permission. So those are the sleep dealers. And then it goes into various directions. There's one, um, there's a Mexican slash Mexican-American family, and one member is an uh, employee of uh, Homeland Security uh, and eventually starts bombing Mexican villages from which people are trying to cross. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe bombs a village where he's from, something like that. I can't quite remember exactly. Uh, the film comes out in 2008. It's, uh, you know, it's an explosion in terms of a certain kind of science fiction. Uh, the term Latinx is not there yet. Um, at that time, the press still sometimes calls it a Mexican-American filmmaker, a Latino filmmaker, uh, the terminology that's used. But it's seen as infiltrating the science fiction category with these kinds of things. And, you know, Alex Rivera comes from the world of contemporary visual arts, uh, you know, goes through creative capital and other kinds of funding structures available to contemporary artists, but then eventually decides that he needs to make this film with a traditional independent film budget um, and, you know, kind of goes Sundance route. And then quite famously, the film production company goes out of business and Alex has to wait many, many years to buy back his own film. Um, for many years, the film disappears. Uh, most recently, he's made a film called The Infiltrators with his partner, Christine, um, which merges real-life footage of the crisis in detention centers during the Trump administration um, with uh, fictional recreations. Um, and I thought of Alex because of this idea of the change of technology and how it's affected the life of somebody who works in science fiction and then how it affects us circling with him. So, John, again, I can't see the images, but if you could go to the image that shows two blue dots pointing at each other with the torch beam going in two different directions. Okay, you just sort of tell me when it shows up, uh, since I can't see. Okay, great. Um, so this is just a, a, a collage of two different images. I was looking for, uh, believe it or not, I was looking for vintage iPhone screens um, and vintage iPhone screens from 2007, which is when this anecdote is from, to see if I could find a screenshot of what the map looked like in 2007. And of course, even with all the digital accumulation, somehow there isn't a copy of it. So that's what I found. And I just composited these two blue dots pointing in two different directions. Uh, the reason I bring it up is up to 2006, um, in my community of uh, friends, artists, activists, you know, we were definitely not thinking of the iPhone um, as a device that we needed to get or a quote unquote smartphone in any way whatsoever. You know, at maximum, somebody might have had a BlackBerry because they had a job somewhere and they got it from there and then never returned it. Um, and then a few of us had the Palm Pilot. And we were all very, very skeptical about the iPhone. And Alex Rivera, out of all of us, was the one person I remember in early 2007 who had an iPhone. And we're just sort of all being very skeptical about him. Oh, you know, Alex, you've fallen for this technology. Who cares? Apple, um, such a dying brand, et cetera, et cetera. And then I just remember it's a really cold night in Manhattan. And he pulls out his iPhone and he shows us the map, whichever map was there at the time. I don't think it was Google. It's a built-in one. And he shows us the blue dot. And then almost like a par parlor trick, he sort of walks half the block and the blue dot keeps moving. And we all go, oh, my God, what is this? You know, just that experience of being clustered around Alex, walking with him half a block and watching the blue dot move with us was somehow some sort of 
something that just stripped away all our skepticism about technology. Um, and I just literally remember thinking, oh, I have to get one of those. That's really useful because I always get lost. And I tell that story partially because, you know, here's somebody, um, Alex Rivera, who has done this very sharply critical science fiction work that takes apart the surveillance state um, through the nice popcorn-like uh, device of the science fiction film. And he, I, at that time, you know, Ben mentioned writing about my work. I was part of a collective called Visible Collective. And from, I think, about 2003 to 2007, we had been working on the surveillance state after 9-11 and its particular focus on uh, presumed Muslim immigrants. And with, with all our skepticism, we still, all it took was this moving blue dot to just convince us um, that, oh, you know, this device is what we need. And we can get into all of everything of all of the criticism of how we self-surveil. Sorry, Ben, go ahead, please. Oh, nothing. I mean, I, 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 think, um, I think that gives me actually a good transition to Julieta um, because, um, well, I should say, I have thoughts about what you just said that I, I do wanna, um, you know, I think I, I'd like to talk more just to, to, to plant a flag in this about the relationship with the, the, the class question, and the technology question, um, because I think that, um, you know, there, we have undergone this transition where there was this moment when like that you're talking about where everyone was very excited about technology. And then part of we're through the tech, the tech backlash, right? I mean, I think everyone in our spheres, our uh, activists in our spheres, they're very aware of the, technological you know, the problem of data harvesting, the, 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 um, the problems of surveillance, the problems of uh, <coughs> algorithmic control of, of information and stuff. It's all very interesting, but I, I, it is sort of um, some of the pro problems I talk about in the book or around technology have to do with this question of digital populism, like the museum transforming itself to reach new audiences and, and, and how that puts kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, different kinds of pressures on the institution. And so I want to, I want to talk about that later, but I think that you're the dystopian piece that you talked about this, this question about Alex Rivera's um, dystopian look at technology, technology kind of is a logical transition to Julieta because the last chapter of the book is called Art and Ecotopia. And it is about artists engaging with questions of, of the environmental crisis. I really think that the fact that um, the urgency of the question around climate change is one of the things that for me has started to make, it very clearly makes this feel like a new period, like a new cultural period has been entered because that question does hang over everything. And one of the things I speak about in the book is the fact that our cultural imagination is so dystopian um, that most of the available cultural images that we have to, to access are dystopian ones and the history of, of radical or lefty forms of utopian thought, looking at, at recovering them, but then also what it would mean to recover them in an actual way, in a way that's, in a, in a way that's actually productive, um, what the conditions are for it not to, to be just a new form of escapism or to avoid some of the capture of that rhetoric by Silicon Valley and so on. And Julieta, you um, have been talking, you've been lecturing about some of these the environmental questions, um, I think uh, in ways that very much resonate with me about how it really does 
affect every, I think the last Venice Biennale was the last time I, I remember thinking when I was there, oh, we are not in a time anymore when there is going to be a subgenre of art that is, um, that is um, ecologically themed. That's going to be the subtext of everything because as, 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 as because it's such a big theme that is going to really underlie um, um, all of cultural production. It really does throw into really kind of thing. These are questions you've been thinking about. I, I, I know um, you are, you have COVID. <laughs> Thank you for being here. And, uh, and I, and that's why I just, I say that because, because I, I, I think, I know you wanted to have more of a conversation, and but so we'll just open up to you now and see if you have any initial thoughts about about those themes. Actually, quite a bit. Uh, can you hear me well? Yes. Okay. So, uh, I mean, like one of the first questions that came to me when I was reading uh, the, the specific cha- chapter, Ecotopia, is um, a question that I have asked myself many times, which is, what is the work of the artwork? What is art supposed to do? And I mean, you are answering that uh, in a sense because there is like um, reparation and warning, right? That those are like the two threads that. Yeah, you... John, like there's art that warns you that like takes as its mission, revelation to this theme, takes as its mission, you know, telling you that things are bad or could get worse, and then art that kind of um, uh, tries to uh, do the work of healing. Yeah, and I mean, I think that before trying to answer, I want to think, I'm I'm going to use um, Naim's image of the Mona Lisa to try to understand not only what is the work of artwork, but um, who is art working for? So we think about the Mona Lisa, all the flashes in, in the museum, it disappearing and so on. But then what happened in the last couple of years is that the significance of a Da Vinci is so great and so present that it actually, there is a demand for a new Da Vinci. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the one that cannot be really authenticated. Right, yeah. That was taken out of circulation immediately and is it just becomes like a cipher and a marker of wealth for someone that managed to score a... Um, you know, somehow a, a kind of Da Vinci. And that kind of like anecdote gives gives you an example of of who art is working for, right? And and it's it has become um uh, uh you know like a storage of capital, like a tremendously so. And of course when we are um trying to tackle um questions that are uncomfortable for, for some of those the people that hold big capital, um, it's, it gets complicated. Um, I, am, I am still, um, I have still not seen work that actually um, I am sold on, that I say, okay, you are doing it right, yeah? And mm-hmm. that um, that is sad. I mean, I, I, it's also something that, um, because I hope that art is not just illustrating. I want to think that it can do something else. Um, and I used to work, and this is like a, a personal um, uh, thought, I used to work with science fiction. I have not corrected my uh, my short bio, but I work with science fiction forever. Until very recently, when I realized that I was very skeptical of the future, very skeptical of the images of the future, that, of course, as we have run out of um, space that can be conquered and te- uh, territorialized, then 
the push is to conquer time. And it's no accident that the images of the future that we are illustrating as artists are actually not coming from us. They tend to come from a techno-driven fantasy. And they are really supported by, um, you know, uh, people in Silicon Valley and things like that. And these are all techno futures. It's, it's a techno future that is really monolithic. The future looks like the future looks like the future. It's the, it's one. And um, that started troubling me and I could not pinpoint why, you know, it's like, okay, so artists want to produce the future and they are getting the funds. So why? And then, um, of course, that one of the, things that trouble me is that um, also something that happened uh, with the pandemic, right? We were very quick at saying, okay, so what will happen when this is over or when we will go or when we go back to normal? But it was very difficult try, trying to imagine living with. Yeah. And this idea of being able to live um, made me think that it is not possible to produce the future unless one tackles the difficult task of composing livable presence. And that, that is the temporality I want to work with. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, I mean that that's so I love what you said um about uh how you haven't seen an artist or artwork does it exactly right. You know? I, I feel like again, there's this tremendous pre tremendous pressure on the cultural space to deliver results right now. Uh, about either political results because the political the various forms of political um, pressures on art or economic results, um, 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 both because of the tremendous inequality dominance of wealth in art, but also because you know artists are humans who need to make some form of money. I mean, and the and the society has become more and more precarious. So there's logically more pressure on people's uh, logically more um, realism about about money making, um, and. Um, I guess one of the things I realized in, in just putting together this collection of writings is that I'm not sure there's going to be a right way within art to re resolve a lot of the problems I write about within art. Um, and I, I think that that is a realistic starting point that, I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of the, my essays, I feel like have the same structure that you look at a, 
a, a problem um, um, within uh, or debate within art. And you come back to the idea that that um, it's going to be very difficult to to resolve this problem by taking one side or the other because because ultimately um, uh, uh, art you can only go so far with art you know you you can you can find better ways to make better ways to live better ways to intervene but if you don't have uh, uh, social movements that can move the needle on some of the deeper issues and you don't have and you, and you don't social movies that win and actually uh, win redistributions, justice, and so on, then art continues to bear these intensifying pressures that manifest in these, in these contradictory ways. Uh, go ahead. I mean, there is, there is, of course, this pressure um, of art to be done in, um, you know, like a reparative uh, modality, um, which it's always something complicated because it feels a, a little bit like outsourcing politics to artists who with the best of intentions are not qualified. They are not politicians, they are not urbanists. They can imagine they can try to imagine what it would work like, but I don't want my heart surgery to be done by a plumber, right? <laughs> I do want to imagine that that is not a solution. You know, like whatever artists are doing is a proposition, but not a solution. And to insist that artists deliver solution solutions is is troubling for me, right? Because I think that that becomes simple, um, yeah, outsourcing outsourcing of of the problems to artists. So okay, deliver results that are tangible that we can understand. Um, I mean, like, I was thinking a lot about, um, you know, like, time. The, there was a movie, a science fiction movie called, um, a dystopian science fiction called uh, In Time, I think. I don't know. But... Um, was it In Time or Elysium? Let me, let me check. Um, no, it was Elysium, sorry. I, I, which, uh, you know, was, I'm sorry? That one I know. Yeah, which presents a kind of like really dystopian, um, uh, you know, future and terrible um, sadness and so on. And the funny thing is that that future presented in the in the movie was shot in the present. It was shot in an incredibly poor neighborhood in Mexico City. So that future already exists. That kind of poverty and um, uh, despair and so on already exists. And one of the things that happens is that, um, you, you know, like art, uh, I mean, like when we're looking at class, yeah, which is something that was mentioned before, I mean, like, I think that we have to think about what ecological um, change as it is being packaged now, um, who is that for, right? And it comes with a price tag. I mean, like eating organic, comes with a price tag. You cannot ask the single mother to grow, you know, to make sourdough bread and the single mother of five with two jobs. You know, it's it really comes with, uh, you know, a, a price tag that makes it only affordable for people of a certain class. So I'm wary of a kind of uh, um, ecology that's only available available for the few. Yeah, well, which is to say the, the transformation of an environmental movement into a cultural product, you know, and, and that that is one of the roles that 
um, one of the cynical roles that art seems to that often art seems to serve is, it, and, and a lot of the the dilemmas, the the, the things that give people a lot of angst, um, come down to that is that art is being asked to do a task it can't do because it's it's, it's it condenses condenses broader problems or issues into these this individualistic form of creative practice, which has indisputable good things about it. That's the that's the the that's the contradiction. It wouldn't work if it didn't if it didn't have some good thing. They the, the condition for it to function ideologically is it has to it has to it has to actually represent stuff that people people want. Just like I don't think organic food is bad. I think it's bad that becomes like a luxury product but i mean like people are in um poor neighborhoods fighting for organic food and i feel a little bit the same about uh, about culture and it's a very contradictory situation that we live in where uh we're, argument i make in the book is we live at the end of this long period of neoliberalism and part of its function has been to um um you know people talk about a lot about the destruction of the labor movement and the destruction of um, um, various social movements um, that have led to the extreme states of inequality in the last um, in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years. But the flip side of that has been an increasing like culturalization of politics. That's the kind of like carrot to the stick of neoliberalism is to, to transform to, to to migrate a lot of political energy into academic and cultural spaces where, you know, they, on the one hand, preserve good ideas. On the other hand, they're like isolated and contained in these kind of boutique um, forms of things. Um, and the last thing, just to bring it back to Naeem. Um, um, can, can, can I just like say a last thing? I mean, like the, when, when I was saying that I find that art that addresses ecological uh, issues can be problematic because if it stays only a subject matter, and does not change the structure, like the, radically the structure upon which um, art world is predicated. It's not doing its job because art, you know, eco ecology is the same as any other trend that has existed. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking um, about specifically about. Um, so Olafur Eliasson took an iceberg uh, tip to yeah. Paris. Yeah. How? What kind of carbon carbon footprint that move? Have. Yeah, well, I think he'd tell you that he um, bought the carbon off offsets for it and, and, and so on. But yeah, but I, mean, the, I, I mean, you don't want to buy the carbon offset. You want to not have the carbon footprint. And it's uh, if everybody buys the carbon offset, still, the you know, like the, the carbon the emissions keep existing. So how do you manage to change um the materials that you use, the, it's not just about subject matter, but it's about materials, it's about uh, circulation, it's about what kind of dreams are you fostering, what kind of presence are you preserving. Before you get into building a single channel future, you have to think that there are many lanes of present. And you want to have, or I want to have futures, not, not, one, not one future. So for that, I would like to imagine many presents and take care of them. And that's part of an ecology, like an uh, ecological work I would like to see happening. Naeem, do you have? Yeah, uh, actually I have a couple of things to say. I just wanted to wait. Um, you know, there's a few things I take a slightly different viewpoint on, um, even though I appreciate the place from which it's coming. Um, and, you know, Juliet as a pioneer and 
actually pushing some of these forms and these topics into a broader conversation at a time when nobody was willing to have that conversation. So in that sense, it's definitely the long view. Um, but I do feel a bit troubled by the idea uh, that artists are somehow the plumbers. I, I'm slightly mixing metaphors, the plumbers trying to do the heart surgery because hopefully uh, when visual artists are going into a very specific tangible issue that we somehow define as having a solution in real time, um, you know, one of the challenges of climatic change is it's sometimes even quite challenging from the temporality that we can hold inside our head to think about actually even a time frame for that, which is why people frequently invoke the words, you know, for future generation, because they kind of presume it won't be in their lifetime. And, you know, hence the appeal of a figure like Greta Thunberg being somebody who presumably will live long enough to appreciate this. But I think, you know, just going back to whether visual artists should be in some ways, you know, quote on, you know, this is not a word that any of you use, but sometimes the sentiment can be, oh, they're dabbling in that which they're not qualified to do. And I feel that, you know, artists are often, you know, bringing the first, not the first look, bringing the awareness of a topic into a space where maybe that topic would not be. Maybe the topic has already been discussed in exhaustive detail in the newspaper, in the book, uh, in the public meeting, in the NGO office, etc. Maybe those people might look at the contemporary visual artist and say, oh, now you're working on this, or, oh, this is such a small frame view of this. Meanwhile, we have the 256-page report that gets into the granular detail. And that may even lead to thinking of the artist as a dilettante, um, you know, or to use um, that book about Google that talked about the vast sea of knowledge as being something that because of Google, you now skim the surface and you don't have to go deep. But if you read the Wikipedia entry, you can already project uh, that you know everything there is to know about Walter Benjamin, for example. So that instant expertise is part of our challenge of our time. But I still do feel like the contemporary visual artist is hopefully not presuming to produce something of the heft of that long-form research and not pr proposing to substitute either but to bring up that tension in a different way, it's like a different pinprick. Um, and, and one example I'll give just because I was talking about him with my students recently and realizing that they know, know this artist work very recently. And I know their work from a 9-11 context, which is Trevor Paglen. Uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath of Trevor Paglen, there were a few of us, uh, quite a few of us working on post 9-11 security panic, Mariam Ghani, Chitra Ganesh, our group Visible Collective, Trevor. And Trevor had this, I felt what was a twofold approach. Um, because he was in a PhD program in experimental geography, he also brought out a book called Tortured Taxi because he was tracking the rendition planes. And then he was doing his projects in the gallery, which were not at all complete, uh, often actually marked by their opacity, et cetera. And in my mind, when just as a receiver of those works, I remember thinking, oh, the book is the serious work and the gallery work is the one that just touches the surface and maybe both of these things need to stay together. And that's a sort of confusing example because it's the same person. But in my mind, it was always that these are different pinpricks of light going in two different directions, serving a different function. Just one other thing. I, I know that Juliette, you want to just jump in. I just also want to say that we, in our formulation and because of who we know or who is our community, there's sometimes a risk of overstating how much of the contemporary arts is involved in direct politically motivated oriented work. And the majority of contemporary art production is still about works that 
are not doing that. So just to have that perspective also, there is not a flood necessarily. Okay, so I want to stop there. Yeah, um, I have a response, I mean, but I want you to respond. Um, just to say, you know, I, I know that it's very harsh to say that uh, the, the bit about the plumber, but this is not, I don't mean that as a diss to artist, by no means. What I mean and what I criticize and what I complain about are institutions that come to expect that solutions will be given by artists and stop looking for them. You know, I, I, I want to make work that addresses the housing crisis. I don't want to be tasked with solving the housing crisis. Um, and those are different registers. And of course, I want, so this is not about the artists. It's about expectations, the unrealistic ex expectations that get, that get placed onto art of this caliber. Um, obviously, I mean, like, <laughs> including my own work, you know, it, it touches on political issues and on social issues very much. Um, I, I just want to think that it's not the, you know, not an answer, not, not the expected answer. And so just so that it's not misunderstood. Do you feel, do you feel that the institutions are almost just to take that analogy a little bit further? Do you feel like not the museum necessarily, but the broader constellation of institutions do you feel like they're almost shirking their duty to also get the specialist who can drive to a solution like do you feel like in some ways the the non-expert who has one pin prick the institution brings them into the fold and then doesn't touch the larger issue like it, it of course of course Okay. I mean, get strategic hires at institutional levels, you know, and the strategic, um, uh, you know, conversations and public uh, uh, events that criticize the very thing that the institution is actually uh, working on. Case in point, there was the new museum tri triennial that was funded by this person with the. Um, I mean, uh, who was it? Was it forensic architecture that made the work? That the, uh, uh, there was Whitney, the Whitney Museum. Whitney Museum. The, the Whitney yes. by you're talking about the Warren Kander case. Yeah, exactly. So that's you know those are the kind of things. Just this, just to say, this is very uh, constructive for me. This conversation and this kind of um, debate between the two of you is really, uh, I think, emblematic of a debate that, that lots of people are having in this moment. Which again, I think, is a transitional moment. Um, I think what Naeem said earlier in, in his conversation about how, like, there was a moment around Occupy Wall Street about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, when when um, it felt like um, art or what, you know, the political conversation people were having in art um, was very um, symbolic. You know, it was very like, um, you know, if I just inspire conversation and that art's role is like, is, is some kind of very... Um, abstract aesthetic thing, like recoding aesthetics as art. That's something I, I read about in that book. I think the critique of that, the critique of the, 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 the remove of art um, from practical politics and the critique of the museum and the compromise of the museum has become very, very mainstream amongst people who consider them political artists, amongst people themselves um, who, are, who are, are interested in having a political Praxis and it sort of permeated everything and become a, a, a deep anxiety about within and without outside of the museums affected um, all of our um, the way all of us think about things. And so that that is part though of of what happened. That is the part of the transitional moment we're in. Is that 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 critique 
the critique is very mainstream, but there is no, the, 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 the problems, what it would take to change those institutions or structures is, is, is more than there's any kind of material force in order to push through. So therefore you get a series of intellectual formulations or comp- or, or thoughts that are more, um, you know, people turning on each other, like very moralistically because, Oh, you're, you're, you're involved in these um, uh, contradictory institutions. No, you who are saying that are even more compromised and so on. And, and that my fear is that, that you can't stay in that country <coughs> forever. And so what you, I think you see right now is the moment of sorting it out where, where people will either resolve the contradiction towards being like all that poli- political stuff is bullshit, um, um, hypocrisy, double speak, virtue signaling, and you have a conservative wave. Or it connects with some sort of like like actual movements that can, if they don't change the entire structure, can contribute to 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 building uh, longer term movements that you could have as a reference towards what it mean to move the ball forward. Um, um, in and, and I think that that work is being done in molecular ways, but it's not it's not it's not visible or, or, or practical. If you ask me what I think is going to happen, it's the former. I think we're in a in a in a backlash uh, period. My hope within the book is to is to kind of reframe some of these debates. It's like, do you need to like change the whole institution, or do you need to like uh, just forget about politics altogether, it, it, and try and place it in a little more like practical uh, footing in, in, in a lot of in a lot of the different ways. In the question of of, of ecological art, you know what it means, you know, um, you know, because because whatever we're going to do is going to be a tiny step, but at the same time. Uh, uh, confining ourselves to tiny steps has been a way to to deflect the the conversation about about ecology um, um, for a long time. You know, to, to 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 make us focus on our individual consumption instead of structural change. So we're just going to have to to take you guys. are both want to talk, um, and and I'll let you in a second. So we just have to figure out how to like um, walk and chew gum at the same time because um, I think Naima is right that these conversations are in one sense, very mainstream amongst a certain set of people who are engaged with these problems, other sent very marginal and fragile. And, um, and, and, and I think we have to uh, uh, be realistic about, about, about both those things, how these things can be incorporated into in very cynical ways and how, and how they're, they're what we got. You go to war with the army that you have and the army that we have is, is very fragile uh, um, thing that um, is in some ways very isolated, and I think the, the first steps are thinking about what kind of practical movements uh, that, that we can be a part of. Uh, I don't. I think Juliet spoke last on Naim, but just very quickly because you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, I was reminded of two things related to that. Uh, the second week of Occupy Wall Street, I think, was when the Creative Time Annual Summit was happening. And, you know, now Creative Time Summit, that model has been taken on by many, many people. But 2011, it was still relatively new. And, you know, it was a host of artists who you could say are working not only in legible political registers, but quite a few who are within the category of what then started becoming called social practice. Uh, you know, there's at Queen's College, there's now a whole program on social practice. And Dan Wang, uh, the artist, was there. And at some point in the middle of his, you know, talk, he just said, you know, what are we all doing here? We should go down to Occupy Wall Street. And I think I credit him for just sort of saying that out loud in the auditorium. 
And, you know, after that, a whole group of us who were there all went down, of course, um, partially inspired, partially shamed, a mixture. And so we're all there and there's this committee and, you know, of course, the arts and culture subcommittee and that goes on for some time. And at the same time, I remembered that uh, there was a Columbia University economics professor, he's an economic, uh, Suresh Naidu, who was not only there, he was on the, the finance committee of Occupy Wall Street because Occupy was actually generating real funds. And seeing him, I just started noticing that there were a lot of uh, professors and grad students there. And I just remember thinking of this twin specter of graduate students uh, and prof- young professors at Occupy trying to join committees and all these artists trying to join committees or because they're not intrinsically fit for the finance committee, maybe join, maybe arts and culture committee. Um, that there was a desire, I think, in both of these groups there are all these ways that we work on some of these issues, issues of class, issues of social disparity, et cetera. But our work, one on the university, the other in the contemporary museum, is somehow generating discourse, but not connected to the solution part of it. And so there was, there was of course, Occupy Wall Street didn't end up being a solution. It was a short-lived burst that also um, ran out of steam, although birthed many other movements. But I just remember these two groups wanting to enter so there was some sort of something that the university and the gallery is somehow not enough. Let's go here. This is the actual praxis of what we've been talking about. So just something to like, the people are always trying to shift or expand their sphere of work as well. Um, Lieta, I, I, um, you should speak and then I should say, um, I've gotten from the, um, the uh, organizers a flood of questions. So I will, okay. uh, oh, if you're watching okay. there, we will... We will talk about them as in just a second. Okay, so um, I guess just to say that, I mean, on one hand, I think that Occupy was not a solution, but it did a brilliant work. It was an event, and it showed that an event is possible, that we actually can have these moments of change um, that we need um, in order to produce present. <coughs> these futures. Now, when I think about the ecologies of art, you know, I'm, I more and more think in terms of visibility because I'm thinking about, you know, the a quick example. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was looking at the trucks that were in New York and in Bergamo, uh, loaded with bodies coming out of cities and incredi- incredibly sad images, right? Incredibly sad. But at the same time, there were bodies in Guayaquil, in Ecuador, that were shrink-wrapped and left on the streets because there was just nobody to take them. And nobody saw those images that were also available. So those are the presents that I find on the ground. <coughs> and I would like to imagine, and, and then the problem is that the presents that don't have uh, a future uh, or a representation in that sense are almost like living extinctions, like dead man, dead man walking. So, um, I want to think that it's possible to produce those visibilities and to work on behalf of those ecologies, the, the, which are fragile, which are the tenuous, and that we want to work for without being condescending. And that would be my, my last bit. Okay, well, um, from um, Ciro, from the chat, a point that has emerged from, for one, bio-art movements, do you think that the creation of art objects in these failing capitalist systems unavoidably compromises their liberatory politics? Um, 
I mean, I, I have I have always been uh, a fan of bio art. That's a that's a big thing for me, um, because I think that bio art often dreams. Right, there is a piece that I love, which is about birthing a dolphin. So it takes things to places that are in the full-on dream territory and images that are very provocative, using the using science and certain materials as as um, you know as the as the source, but that happen in a, in a, you know that, that produce dreams. And I think that the production of dreams is something incredibly important. I think, um, thank you for talking to give me time to, <laughs> to think about how to answer this extremely, I jump in. Um, um, extremely important and also like the question, you know, because, uh, and I think um, a lot of the texture of the debate within art spaces comes down to the fact that this is such a hard question to answer, is that um, people have a commitment to doing something meaningful, that's part of what draws them to art, and then um, kind of the trap of it is, is that you find yourself in a system that, um, you know, is extremely um, compromised. And um, I, that's my experience personally, that's experience of, of everyone I know. Um, and um, I, the, the, the intervention that, that my book, to, to answer Ciro uh, or Hero's question, um, from my point of view is, um, does it inevitably, it inevitably c compromises things. Um, the fact that we work within these systems. Um, however, the question is, I, I guess my goal is to reframe things in a political, not a moral way. I think moral moralism is the curse of the contemporary cultural political sphere. Um, moralism, I think, comes from a sense of powerlessness. I suddenly have gone into some kind of weird uh, mode here. You know, do you guys see that? Uh, I don't know what happened. Um, uh, the point is, is that does something actually happen or is it just a, a Okay. Okay, okay. Um, um, no, I mean, I, I think I think that and, and this is not going to get better. I mean, we are not in our society is not on a trajectory where like these contradictions and pressures are, are going to let up. I mean, the world is getting more alarming, um, more fragmented. Uh, our cultural, our, our social lives, our cultural lives are only getting more commodified and therefore feel less authentic to people and cause people to turn on each other in new kinds of ways. So. Um, do I think it's, it's a compromised position to be in? Yes, I think it's a compromised position to be in. But I think the question has to be, what? how do we move the ball forward in, in a political direction? How do we take steps to organize ourselves to take um, 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 some steps forward, to, to, to organize ourselves to be part of, of a political, a positive political um, change and social movements? I don't think like turning on each other about our uh, our various compromises, except when there's when, as part of specific strategic conversations, is that useful? For instance, just in um, the, the question of politics and and, and the, the the corrupt funding, for instance, I'm very supportive. I'm very positive about these conversations. Um, uh, I, I think that they've opened up 
like tremendous useful space that is like meaningfully push the conversation forward on what um, what what left wing art means, what it means to be a radical person. However, these conversations very quickly come to a dead end because it's like everything's corrupt. I mean, all the rich people are corrupt. It's just a completely paralyzing conversation. And because it just dead ends into like an all sided moralism. So I, I think that like being strategic, thinking about how we're connected to very specific campaigns is very, very important. And the last thing I'll say about, you know, um, compromises is that, um, is that, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I heard Naomi Klein say something where she talked about how she thought about this ecological movement, where one thing she pointed out is like, it's complex, right? Because we need a union of, uh, of environmentalists and labor. What is the most stereotypical, like radical labor, or what is most is like the, the auto workers, you know, is like, is like a lot of the radicalism that came out of the auto workers. So it's like, and people are trying to make a transition away from from um, from uh, uh, fossil fuels and carbon capitalism. So it's just you're going to have to navigate and maneuver through contradictions. And I, I think if we could think about it that way instead of um, a kind of a either or binary or either pure or we're corrupt, um, then then I think we're in a better place to have like productive conversations about advance uh, about advances um, because. Because the alternative of looking for like a pure, uncompromised cultural space, that has its own kind of privilege, right? I mean, that, that it's not, it, it's, it's been tried before. You know, people have tried to go to the wilderness to set up um, um, small communes. And unfortunately, capitalism it covers the earth now. It is not possible to opt out. It is possible, like Julieta said before, for to have, you know, like to purchase, to have like little boutique forms of this that are sold back to you. As, a, as something that feels less alienated. Um, but, but I mean, I, I personally don't see any way out besides, um, besides thinking about very concrete local campaigns and problems and, um, and starting from that point of view and working up. Do you have a, do you have a thought about that, Naeem, before? Yeah, just to add that, um, uh, you know, just on this question of uh, search for purity, because what you're saying could be read as well. It's almost like there's none of that to be found anywhere. But we do have some red lines, uh, each of us individually, that a certain line that we won't cross, a certain institution, a certain industry, a certain action, where we say, okay, that's the thing that I don't want to work with or participate in. And those lines keep changing also. Like there might be something that you felt very crucial to participate in or not participate in 10 years ago. And that field has shifted completely. Um, but I think one thing that does make individual artists' decisions about what to participate in, who to be in community with, is that the 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 network of uh, structures undergirding undergirding every institution, event, university have grown incredibly complex, such that there are moments where I've heard this conversation of, oh, I didn't know that that was part of this. And that is, I think, more common now, both because of all the layers between the source and the final public space, and also the fact that nothing is owned, operated, or part of just one institution. Right? So those 
Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, was it Andrea Frazier's project that was just sort of like exhaustive cataloging of, you know, who funds museums, which was partially given a little turbocharged by the first years of the Trump administration and the arts funding there. You know, that project, I'm sure, is already out of date now in terms of what it has entangled because those things are always changing. And I'm not saying that project by itself is going to tell you which museum, university, form, or any of that that you want to work with, but just even figuring out what you're in uh, what you're part of is now quite difficult and complex and maybe even a full-time job figuring that out, which makes the decision process of uh, even understanding what to do so much more complicated. And yeah, I'll stop there. Uh, maybe just say one more thing, which is that the last Whitney Biennial, one of the reasons that a lot of artists focused on that, you know, Juliet also mentioned, because in some ways the lines were clear, you know, tear gas on migrants on a border is really easy to understand. Uh, you know, a massive financial institution that invests in some kind of derivatives that 10 years from now is going to collapse some sort of housing project somewhere is quite difficult for, for us to understand also because it's predictive in the future of what its form could be. So we also keep going towards that which we can understand, that which we can hold. The tear gas canister, which forensic architecture could film somebody holding, it's physical. So that, you know, is both makes sense, but also shows like the limits of working within this system that we live in. So I, uh, here's, I think this is a good question and it has a follow-up. I'm going to read them both. Um, this is from Chiara. Uh, what is meant about visual artist? Someone who has an MFA, someone working in the commercial art world, someone who self-identifies as a visual artist, can we name what position we are assuming? Uh, two related questions, one a follow-up. Chiara, the art world being talked about here is very specific, academic, upper, uh, upper class, tied to the commercial art world. There are many other art worlds that are already connected to movements for justice. Um, and uh, this has been given to me as a connected question from, from Jenny. How important is it for artists to become activists as artists? Shouldn't we join movement shoulder to shoulder with all other citizens of the world? Um, I mean, I guess I can start to answer that because I'm the framing is mine and you, you guys are responding to it. Um, uh, well, the artist, the question of what is an artist is very slippery. They're absolutely true. There are, there are um, all kinds of art worlds that are, people are, um, are uh, you know, there are, are people who are um, uh, completely unconnected to any of the structures that we're, we're talking about here. These are a very specific set of institutions and structures. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it's a pretty privileged, a pretty um, rarefied, rarefied group, uh, grouping. Um, it exists. Uh, it's just a very visible, it's just a very visible part of the, of the culture industry, you know, and, and as a consequence, it absorbs a lot of people's aspirations um, and has a lot of resources. Um, that can uh, that um, and therefore routinely touches off um, lots of lots of debate. And to me, it's it is interesting to navigate those things. I I, I don't think um, that um, all the problems that people wanted to solve um, can be solved within this structure. And that means that all this the the other. Other art worlds, the the people, you know, I don't know, even um, beyond the question of of who is self identifies as an artist, you know, people who who are simply uh, uh, 
I, I think I think yeah, the the solutions to my position is that the solutions to most of the problems that the art world is trying to solve can only be solved by political action. That political action can only be built through coalition between um, vast numbers of people coming from many different backgrounds. To the extent that I'm trying to make a political intervention into the institutional art world is to try and like unlock some of its pathologies that I think focuses it in on itself and makes it harder for it to make common cause with the other kinds of communities and and art worlds that um, would need to be united in some kind of way to make to make social change. Um, it's a small project, it's a local project, but um, I think it's a project that um, that that has a history, and I go into some of the history in the book of of of, of having a place up uh, an importance, not the importance. I think it has a tendency to to reframe itself as as the as the arbitrator of what's important um, culturally and, and 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 socially, and it is not that. It's a very local, quirky um, kind of milieu, milieu with its own things, with its own um, logic. But it, it it does, you know, it has energy that is that is is is. I don't think um, we should concede it to conservatives. Uh, Julieta, you raised your hand, which is very nice because you can just. Uh, just uh, the I think the I mean you you were I'm gonna take it from something that you said before, which is the the when I mean the question is about who are the artists and the issues of privilege, right? And who is speaking? And I mean, of course, I mean that you were mentioning the Naomi Klein quote about auto workers and how that actually is, and you know, with labor being the issue, the you know, like the auto workers are actually the industry that we are against. But then you have also all the people that are producing the food that we eat, right? Like the migrants that pick fruits that are exposed to pesticides, the people that are farming bananas in Costa Rica, or the people that have to deal with the uh, uh, monocrops of oil palm, and which are invisible, right? So. And those are laborers. And now we can make work about that, but it's always under the assumption that we artists are not those people. Because somehow we can dream and there is uh, an understanding that it's all, um, that there is a lot of affluence. And that's why I was talking at the beginning about who is making the work and for whom, right? So there is this uh, saying that people... Um, of uh, lower middle class are very uncomfortable in a museum and they feel like it's not a warm, welcome, welcoming environment for them. Uh, somebody was making a case about that um, a couple of years ago. And I'm trying to think, okay, so how can we produce the kind of change where there, there needs not be a distinction between us and them? The, the, and of course, we need to build a coalition. And of course, I mean, the, you know, um, there should be more of us that come from other backgrounds. It's not a pastime for the rich. And it, that needs to be enforced and that needs to be, um, you know, that, that space for dreaming. And that's why dreaming, I was talking about dreaming, because I don't want to imagine that the lower classes toil and suffer and the middle class and the upper class dream and imagine. 
And that's a kind of uh, unfortunate partition that, and a kind of, it, it builds, you know, like if we keep that kind of uh, division of class within the art world, um, the commercial art world, let's say. So I think it's possible to integrate several art worlds together. I would like to see that. The next qu question relates to this, but Naeem, do you have a, do you have a, this is probably the last question unless there are a flood of other ones. Because uh, uh, Let's go to the next question. Maybe we'll tie it together in answers. This is um, uh, from Casadilla. Um, working class artists face the challenge of having very little time, resources, or energy to work on their craft. How do we persist slash claim space for everyday people to be part of an artistic community? And um, I guess I was relating that to what you were saying, Julieta, because, um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of exactly what you were touching on just now is, is you know, how the accessibility question of how accessible these spaces, these resources, um, this conversation even is to people. Um, and I guess, again, this is a this gives people a lot of anxiety, um, and you know, rightly so. I, it gives me a lot of anxiety, uh, um, and uh, but it is. Well, one thing I say is it's not an intellectual problem. That's what I have on to respond to you, Julieta, is that I think that's true um, that there's this. Well, for one thing, I, I think that there is um, there are cultural spaces that, you know, there's plenty of commercial culture. I think you could say a lot of bad things about capitalism. I don't think you can say that it culturally deprives people. It deprives people of a lot of things, probably education, free time um, and so on. But. It, it is here to, to fill your free time with uh, things you can buy and experiences. And I think that um, this, to bring come back to the digital culture question, the question that, that Naeem started with, I mean, I, I think that in terms of accessibility, this is a question museums are debating right now, right? It's like, it's like um, they look at the fact that there are massive numbers of people turning out for Instagram environments and um, and uh, forms of new forms of like things that are like art like entertainment, and they think, well, our galleries are empty, <laughs> you know. And so the critique of elitism has already been internalized by capitalism, and it offers it offers itself to people um, a, a commercial solution for it. Um, and then the question is, well, do was was being was being popular was was art for the masses really the point in the first place, or was it, or was you know was there a deeper problem than just the fact that, that people felt alienated? I mean, why do people feel alienated um, by cultural spaces? Uh, um, uh, it's not you know it's partly because it's partly because you know I I think it's still the case it is true uh, that um, it's just education level is what is the biggest correlate to 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 whether or not people are museum or gallery goers, just familiarity through your educational background. And I think, I guess what it's saying is it's hard to solve some of these problems at the level of ideas. And I think we keep the, the work of a lot of ideologies that turn material problems into ideological, into problems of ideas. And the way I think about the question from this, the, the question that's being asked is how do we make these spaces accessible? I think there's a tremendous, a lot of thought being going into that. Go, that's going into that right now. I mean, um, people, for good reasons and bad reasons, there's cynical questions that are just about audience development and just getting numbers to the door 
um, for those kind of reasons, people think about, you know, how do we, uh, what kind of, you know, audience engagement and development programs do we have in place to bring in new communities? But I, I really think that people, um, uh, uh, there are things that we can do, but to me, these questions always, they're kind of like um, questions about alternative medicine or something like that. Like there are things that we can do. We can teach each other, you know, first aid so that if you have a, 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 cri a crisis problem, that you, you have the tools to, to, um, to, to help yourself. But if healthcare is still inaccessible to most people, you're still, you still have a bigger and bigger problem. And I think that we can do all kinds of things to, to, um, to should, you know, and I think that some of the most inspiring things in art, um, are happening at this level to bring, to bring, to make spaces more accessible to people without resources, um, um, without connections, without money. But as long as society gets more and more unequal and our life gets more and more unstable, you just, that is going to be an underlying problem. Um, there's going to be a difficulty at the heart of all these conversations that can't be resolved. So I think that, again, it's a matter of navigating those two poles, was holding those two things together, that at once trying to hold the space open for, um, to, 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 to activate more resources, to interface with, with new kinds of people, but then also to connect those, to not let that, the difficult, the, the intractable difficulties of that um, uh, turn us inward towards like blaming each other and, and, and actually just hold space for the idea that we need, there needs to be um, larger structural, you know, systemic change. Naeem, you've, you've, again, this raising the emoji hand. Raising raising the emoji hand. Uh, you know, you answered or partially answered the access question looking at the institution. Um, and just worth mentioning, I just found out last weekend, it might have been for a while, but I only found out last weekend that the Queen's Museum uh, has removed their admissions fee. Um, so that's like one kind of answer, right? The first, first step. Uh, but I was thinking of something different when that question was read out, which is also about who are the participants in this space, uh, not just the makers, but the people who are curating, the people who are writing, and the people who are involved in the production of this work. Um, and as has been documented, at least for the US contemporary art space, that sometimes the way the structure sets that up, you need to come from some level of financial solvency to even first participate. Um, and so because I think a lot about art education, which is not to say you need to go to school to make work, um, you know, but to, for some people, they're going to uh, schools because that's also partially a way to build a community. I mean, at least in the U.S., canceling student debt um, and yep. insisting on lower tuition and much more scholarships at uh, universities, including, you know, Columbia University, where I teach. That's the first step. Uh to, you know, it's not about an exhortation to ask for a more, you know, uh, class diverse um, student body, participant body, makers in the gallery, the curators and the writers. It's also about setting up the conditions. Um, and at least school, which is one thing I'm thinking of is, you know, the structures are clear. It's tuition, it's scholarships and it's student debt. Um, and for a while, Occupy Museums and some of those artist run organizations were very focused on student debt. I, I hope that will revive. There was a lot of energy behind that at some point. And it's, a, you know, it's, it's a campaign that's pretty difficult for the powers that be to refute on the basis of you're asking for something illegitimate, you know. Um, 
Yeah. One other thing I just wanted to mention, it's not related to the question, but I just didn't want it to get lost. The reason I had brought up the Mona Lisa story from your book, um, you know, it's partially about the circulation of works, partially about the circulation of works through other forms, right? But also about the, the layering effect. There's the original artwork, then there's the wanted poster of the artwork, then there's the empty space on the wall, which stands in for the artwork. Then there's a mustache that Duchamp draws. And then there's Andy Warhol saying, well, they should just make a copy. And then he makes a silk screen. So these are all early examples of the layering effect. And I thought of that because I, you know, was just at the uh, first year show of, you know, our MFA students at Columbia. And what I was struck by is that people who've come in through photography, who've come in through painting, who've come in through printmaking, are all taking their work off the wall, onto the floor, in sculptural forms, layering multiple media. Everybody's doing their thing that they spent 20 years learning maybe or or less or more now they're sort of not necessarily putting that aside but putting eight other mediums on top and sort of also pushing back as makers against the idea that the painter should be making paintings or only paintings you know or the fusing of painting and performance so that was the other thing i was thinking of that all of those tendencies that in a small way you illustrated in the mona lisa story and illustrated in a way that was simple and easy to understand because it was not I didn't feel drowned by anecdotes, which is like a two-page story. May help me think through what I'm seeing in terms of the forms that people are adopting and the modes of work. And you know, I find it to be a restless um, spilling out of silos of work forms, you know, or expertise. You know, it's not deprofessionalization, but it's a sort of you know uh, de-emphasizing staying in one thing or staying in your lane. Well, we have to, and then I think we're towards the end of time. If there's another question that's related to me. Um, yeah, this is a, um, a quick um, commentary as, as to, I mean, like what happens, yes, art uh, is, uh, a capitalism is providing with blockbuster moments for Instagram opportunities and things like that for a massive amount of people. But what I want to see is art uh, deploying its eman uh, the emancipatory capacity and right that's art can do that I mean, you know like artists and workers have uh, joined forces several times in history so i want to see that i i want to see that those potentials and in, in occupy of course that happened at a point but an instagram photo op is not emancipatory it looks good but it's not what we expect to see. I mean, if I think about, and of course, you know, there are ways in which we fix it personally. I um, This is a personal disclosure. I come from a very lower class background. So as I moved through the, you know, went to Colombia and moved through the art world and so on, all by all coincidences of luck and uh, tenacity, let's say, um, I was expecting to find other people like me. And I am often the only one like myself that I find. So I tend to think that most of the work that I make is to keep the door that allowed me to pass, to keep that door open and to allow other people to pass until we are enough to take down the door or something along those lines. Well, and, and the idea of taking on the door, I think that's that's a good that's a good um, line to end on. Um, I want to thank Naeem and Julieta. Particularly, want to thank for the audience for asking such thoughtful questions and staying here. Um, like I say, I don't think that there is, um, unfortunately, a, a, a neat 
a neat uh, answer to a lot of these these questions. I think the answer has to lie in us building building um, together. And um, so, I just want to say uh, thank you all for being part of that conversation. Um, if you have questions, comments, um, debates, disagreements, feel free to email me. Um, I'm easy to find. And uh, uh, thanks to Haymarket. Thanks to my speakers. Thanks to you, the audience. Uh, good night. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.